Thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to uh, introduce my faculty, Dr. Toby Chai, Ann Stapleton, and Una Lee. Next slide. This course will review the 2019 AUA guideline on recurrent UTIs. All of us uh, on giving the course were part of the guideline panel. We will encompass the diagnosis of recurrent UTI treatment, antibiotic prophylaxis, as well as non-antibiotic prophylaxis. And the evidence supporting the guidelines will be presented, as will a treatment algorithm, which is available through the AUA. We will then, after we get, we're trying to give a relatively brief didactic so that we can answer your questions. So please use that chat function. And then we also will include some cases at the end. Next slide, please. Our objectives are to review the evidence and rationale behind the re recurrent UTI guidelines, to guide the management of UTIs for a wide range of patients, to discuss interactive cases, to highlight common and challenging scenarios, and to provide you with a treatment algorithm. Next slide, please. 60% of women will experience an episode of cystitis in their lifetime, and up to 40% will have another episode. 25 to 50% of whom will experience multiple recurrent episodes. As we have, most of us know in urology, the overuse of antibiotics, and including our favorite fluoroquinolone, leads to collateral damage, and there is a need for antibiotic stewardship where we give antibiotics much more judiciously. Next slide, please. Um, next slide, please. Our index patient is an otherwise healthy woman with an uncomplicated culture-proven recurrent UTI or cystitis associated with acute onset of symptoms. Next slide, please. Dysuria is central to the diagnosis of UTI. Although women can have accompanying urgency, frequency, even hematuria, suprapubic pain, and even incontinence, dysuria is truly the most diagnostic of UTI. Um, in fact, dysuria is very specific with more than 90% accuracy for UTI in young women in the absence of other vaginal um, infections or atrophy. Acute onset symptoms should occur in conjunction with laboratory detection of a uropathogen from the urine. So really our days of self-start therapy are really um, over, and except for rare um, cases. Next slide, please. The diagnosis is made again with symptoms in conjunction with a positive culture. Symptoms are typically for diagnosis of cystitis, we will see usually E. coli, but often we see other pathogens, Enterobacter, Proteus, Klebsiella, and even Staph saprophyticus. But other species are rarely isolated in uncomplicated UTIs. Next slide, please. Now we typically have used the culture um, of 10 to the five or 100,000 um, colony forming units per ml in a clean catch sample. But we now know that anyone with symptoms can be um, considered to have a UTI and treated for that assuming we have a culture. The, the, this um, bacteriological, uh, the bacteriologic diagnosis, which included 10 to the five colony forming units per ml, is actually quite an old study. And we have seen um, 
that women have symptoms with as few as 100 colony forming units per ml um, in women. So really, as long as they have greater than two colony forming units per ml in conjunction with symptoms, we have a high positive predictive value for a UTI. Next slide, please. What is antibiotic stewardship? It is really that we as doctors provide good antibiotic use, which is judicious. So um, we, um, because there haven't been, um, there's been a lot of overuse of cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones, we have seen what's called collateral damage. And what that is, is um, damage that occurs either um, from a, um, the change of micro, uh, of the microbiome, so people can get GI um, occurrences of C. difficile, vaginal yeast infections, um, and particularly development of resistance to specific antibiotics. Providers need to also know the local antibiogram, which is how often do we see resistance to, let's say, Bactrim in our community. And that is um, dependent on a an an local antibiogram, which we see in, um, from our own hospitals. That's where we can get that information. Next slide, please. So we conducted, to, to, to develop the data for our review, we conducted a systematic review, which was in conjunction with the Pacific Northwest Evidence-Based Practice Center. We determined the scope of the guideline and, the, um, and reviewed the final review to inform the statements. We did several searches in Medline, the Cochrane Review, and Embase, and then we supplemented these um, searches with reference lists. We then updated information up until September 20th of 2018. Next slide, please. This is showing how we determine evidence base. So a strong recommendation in the left column has high evidence strength if the benefits clearly outweigh the risks and it applies to most patients in most circumstances. Evidence B is um, considered that the benefit is substantial, but applies to most uh, patients in most circumstances, but better evidence could still change our confidence. And evidence grade C is considered where the benefits do outweigh the risks, but the um, better evidence is likely to change our confidence. So usually um, if we feel strongly about uh, these um, the the evidence we have the ability to make a strong recommendation if maybe there is still um, evidence that could be changed with further studies. Next slide, please. Moderate recommendations are similar, but if you see to have a an, a moderate recommendation on the left with high strength evidence. It again, um, we think that future research is unlikely to change confidence. And as we go from B to C, we, um, we show that better evidence is more likely to change confidence. Um, so meaning um, uh, if, if we're not totally sure we have a good feeling about something, but we need more evidence and more evidence may change what we do, then this might end up being a, a strength C evidence study. And then a conditional recommendation is um, if we have is, is basically we're not sure if there's a benefit or harm, and whether it's based on grade A, B, or C evidence depends on um, the specific study and the specific recommendation. And again, it's a balance between benefits and risks. Next slide, please. 
Then we have what's called a clinical principle, which is a statement which we don't have that much evidence, but we widely agree upon this um, among urologists or other clinicians, whether or not there may not be true evidence. And lastly, expert opinion, which is really based on the opinion of the members of the panel. Next slide, please. And we will now take it to our next speaker. Dr. Chai will talk about the workup of, of a patient with recurrent UTIs. Great, um, thank you, Dr. Anger. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you tonight or afternoon, wherever you are joining us. I'm going to go over the evaluation which of evaluation of recurrent UTI, which is the first eight uh, statements in the guideline. Um, do I have control now or do I have to have you guys switch for me? Let's see. Can you go to the next slide for me? If Am I controlling because it's not going forward? Okay, so the first guideline statement is clinicians should obtain a complete patient history and perform a pelvic exam in women presenting with recurrent UTIs. So in the history, I think the way I approach it is thinking about assessing the overall pelvic health of the woman that's in your office. So you wanna query about urologic symptoms such as lower urinary tract symptoms, dysuria frequency, urgency, nocturia, incontinence, back or flank pain, signs such as hematuria, in rare cases, pneumaturia, fecaluria, could suggest a fistula somewhere between the GI and GU tract. I think assessing the acuity of the symptoms is very important in terms of whether it came on suddenly. And then also asking whether the symptoms resolved previously with antibiotic treatment. Certainly history of other GU surgeries or kidney stones are important to ask. Other aspect of the pelvic floor health includes gynecologic and reproductive history, asking questions about vaginal discharge or irritation, assessing the menopausal status of the woman. If they're not menopausal, inquiring about menstrual symptoms, type of contraceptive use. An obstetrical history is important, including the GPA status, gestation, para, and abortion system, modes of delivery, sexual history, including sexually transmitted infections, and type and frequency of contraceptive use, as well as prior gynecologic history. Obviously, the pelvic floor is also involved in um, the lower GI tract and a query of lower GI tract function and symptoms such as constipation, diarrhea, fecal continent status would be also important. History that is specific to the recurrent UTI should include querying about symptoms that the patient considers indicative of developing a UTI. Hopefully, <laughs> it will be consistent with what we would consider classic, but sometimes Patients do share slightly different symptom presentations in their estimation. We should also ask about events that 
patients can associate preceding these acute UTI symptoms, such as sexual activity. We also want to have documentation of positive urine cultures and as well as sensitivities. And of course, most of us in this um, course probably know that many of the patients are sent to us without a clear documentation of urine cultures in the past. We also wanna know about type of antibiotics used for treating the um, UTI, but also other antibiotic use for other infections. So allergies to antibiotics, of course, are important. In the physical exam, obviously the main point here is actually doing a pelvic exam, which is very important. We want to assess for pelvic organ support, presence of any palpable urethral abnormalities that might suggest a diverticulum, noting whether the vaginal mucosa is estrogenized, looking for things uh, such as a Skene's gland duct cyst, uh, vaginal discharge if it's present, also looking at the dermatologic area uh, or dermatologic health of the vulva. We should also note pelvic muscle tone, tenderness of the pelvic muscle, and strength of the pelvic muscle. We can consider doing a focal neurologic exam to look for any possible neurologic deficit. Bladder scan with postfiry residual should be performed in any patient with suspicion of incomplete bladder emptying. The second statement is to make a diagnosis of recurrent UTI, clinicians must document positive urine cultures associated with prior symptomatic episodes. Patients must have urine culture findings consistent with UTI during the acute onset of UTI-associated symptoms and signs. The number of the above episodes should meet the criterion or criteria, since there's two criteria for recurrent UTI, um, which are two episodes over six months or greater than equal to three episodes over 12 months. Prior culture sensitivities can help select appropriate antibiotics if one uh, were to start treating before the final results come back. Third guideline statement, clinicians should obtain repeat urine studies when initial urine specimen is suspect for contamination with consideration for obtaining a catheterized specimen. Urine culture showing greater than 10 to the fifth CFU per mil of a single urine pathogen is considered the positive test result for culture. But as we heard Dr. Anger mention earlier, possibly a lower count threshold may be appropriate in symptomatic individuals. Association of acute onset of symptoms with a positive urine culture is key. Now, contamination of specimens from perineal microorganisms can result in suboptimal or unnecessary treatment with poor outcomes. So if the culture result comes back contaminated or you suspect it's contaminated, consider sending a catheterized specimen. Concomitant urinalysis can, can also provide additional guidance. Certainly presence of squamous epithelial cells or mucus in the microscopic urinalysis could suggest contamination. Bacteria such as lactobacilli, group B strep, corine bacterium, and non-saprophyticus coag negative staph are thought to be contaminated, or contaminants, and generally do not require treatment.
The fourth statement is cystoscopy and upper tract imaging should not be routinely obtained in the index patient presenting with recurrent UTI. Cystoscopy and upper tract imaging are not routinely necessary in uncomplicated recurrent UTI due to a low yield of anatomic abnormalities. If a patient does not respond appropriately to treatment for an uncomplicated UTI or the flare that the patient has, the patient should be considered to have a complicated UTI, thereby necessitating evaluation. Cystoscopy may be useful in evaluation of complicated UTI to assess for anatomic or structural abnormalities. In patients with previous pelvic surgery, cystoscopy can be helpful to assess for anatomic abnormalities that may have arisen from previous surgery, including urethral anatomic abnormalities, stricture for obstruction, foreign bodies that could be eroded through, such as mesh, bladder stones, bladder fistula, urethral, or bladder diverticuli. The fifth guideline statement is clinicians should obtain urinalysis, urine culture, and sensitivity with each symptomatic acute cystitis episode prior to initiating treatment in patients with recurrent UTIs. As previously described, UA can determine the presence of squamous cells suggestive of contamination. Such information from a urinalysis may indicate that obtaining a catheterized specimen is reasonable to accurately evaluate a patient's culture result. However, urinalysis provides little increase in diagnostic accuracy. In select patients, presumptive treatment with antibiotics can be initiated prior to finalization of the culture result based on prior culture results that patient may have already have in their records, as well as a local antibiogram. Considering shared decision-making with a patient with regards to deferring any antibiotic treatment, even empirically, prior to getting the results from the urine culture. Since progression to acute, from acute cystitis to pyelonephritis is uncommon, initiation of conservative non-antibiotic treatments, such as urinary analgesics, uh, phenazopyridine or pyridium or azo, while awaiting urine culture results may be reasonable in select circumstances. Point of care dipstick or home dipstick analysis to diagnose recurrent UTI or guide treatment decisions is not advised. Six guideline statement, clinicians may offer patient initiated treatment or self-start treatment to select recurrent UTI patients with acute episodes and here's a key point, while awaiting urine cultures. You still get the culture, so self-start without a culture should not be done, but self-start with a culture is acceptable. So again, you should have a shared decision-making with a patient. The patient should be informed of the process of initiating a short treatment course of antibiotic therapy at their own discretion um, for a symptomatic flare. Again, they should go and give a culture before starting the empiric therapy. Although the original concept behind self-start therapy, again, allow patients for getting their UTI treated without a culture, since our goal is to reduce overuse of antibiotics and development of antibacterial resistance, 
uh, we, the panel, recommend obtaining culture data for symptomatic recurrences. However, the panel appreciates that in certain situations, procurement of a urine culture will not be possible, i.e. on the weekend, and empiric therapy may be allowed in select circumstances when the clinicians deem patients to be reliable with communication and self-assessment of symptoms. Local antibiograms and prior urine cultures provide clinicians critical data regarding the choice of antibiotics to use. Documentation by the clinician of the frequency of such self-initiated treatment episodes and course of symptom resolution will assist in defining an individualized strategy for therapy and determining necessity for alter, al alterations in strategy. Seventh guideline statement, clinicians should admit surveillance urine testing, including urine culture in asymptomatic patients who have recurrent UTIs. Without symptoms, bacteria or of any magnitude is considered asymptomatic bacteria, or ASB. While pregnant women and patients scheduled to undergo invasive urinary tract procedures benefit from surveillance culture and potential treatment of the results, substantial evidence supports that other populations, including women with diabetes mellitus, patients in long-term care facilities, do not require or benefit from additional evaluation or antimicrobial treatment. In women with recurrent UTIs, there is no evidence that identification of asymptomatic bacteria between UTI episodes provides useful prognostic information. The eighth guideline statement, clinicians should not treat ASB. Evaluation and treatment of recurrent UTI should be performed only when acute symptoms suggest UTI are present. In women with recurrent UTIs, there is no evidence that treatment of ASB results in improved clinical outcomes, and there is clear evidence that treatment with antibiotics can actually cause harm, such as opportunistic infections and antibiotic resistance, the collateral damage that we heard. One randomized trial of 673 women with a median age of 40 with, histories, with history of recurrent UTIs and ASB found that antibiotic treatment versus no antibiotic treatment was associated with an increased risk of symptomatic recurrence, odds ratio of 3.17, and as well as development of antibiotic-resistant organisms. These findings suggest that ASB may actually prevent the development of symptomatic UTIs. In addition, a recent systematic review concluded that antimicrobial treatment of ASB does not appear to improve microbiologic outcomes, morbidity, or, or mortality. Current evidence also indicates that screening and treatment of ASB does not reduce UTI rates, morbidity, or mortality in high-risk patients, such as those elderly, immunosuppressed, renal transplant patients, or diabetics. The only clearly recognized indication for screening and treatment of ASB are pregnant women and patients undergoing elective urologic surgery. The decision to treat ASB in patients undergoing elective non-urologic surgery, such as hip replacement or dental work, is outside the scope of this guideline. How about ASB and struvite stones? This is a very unique situation, not common, but 
Certain bacteria do produce urease and are associated with development of struvite stones in the urinary tract. When infection stones are present, complete removal of stones is required in order to eradicate the associated UTI. However, there is no clear evidence that identification and treatment of ASB caused by urease-producing organisms prevents struvite stone formation. The practice of treating uh, patients with antibiotics exposes the patients to inherent risks. The panel does not recommend routine treatment of urease-producing bacteria in the absence of symptoms or documented urinary tract stones. However, in certain patients with recurrent struvite stones, screening for and treating urease-producing bacteria may be indicated if other measures have not been able to prevent stone formation. Certainly, this is an area where more research is required. Thank you, and I will pass the talk on to the next panelist. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. I think I probably have control of my slides here. I'm going to be talking about antimicrobial treatment and prevention of the current UTI. Let me just give this a try. So could I have the next slide, please? Great, all right. So um, going on to point number nine in the guidelines, clinicians should use first-line therapy, which would consist of nitrofurantoin, trimethasone, sulfamethoxazole, or phosphomycin for the treatment of symptomatic UTIs in women, depending upon the local antibiogram. This is a key concept that was um, introduced in the IDSA guidelines for the treatment of acute uncomplicated UTI back in 2011, and we've adhered to this in the AUA guidelines for recurrent UTI. Uh, in our review, we compared antimicrobial therapies for UTI based upon efficacy in achieving clinical and or bacteriological cure. There's relatively little to distinguish one agent from another if you're just looking at killing the bugs, essentially. However, the key considerations introduced in the IDSA guidelines were that the local prevalence of in vitro resistance and the ecological adverse effects of antimicrobial therapy or the collateral damage that we've been speaking of here are really key considerations in choosing therapy for uh, UTI. And may I have the next slide, please? So again, clinicians use are to use the, the three agents mentioned as first-line therapy. These three are available in the United States. Uh, there is one fourth uh, drug that's mentioned in the IDSA guidelines that we don't have yet. The reason these are chosen as the first-line agents is that they are effective in treating UTI but are less likely to produce collateral damage. And trimethylene sulfa uh, is not recommended for empiric use in areas where local resistance rates exceed 20%. Next slide, please. So the second line therapies for treatment would be beta-lactam agents or fluoroquinolones. Reasons you might choose these agents would be a resistance pattern or particularly the resistance of the organism that you isolate from a patient if you are looking at the actual results when you're choosing that, or allergy considerations. In all patients with recurrent UTI, you do want to avoid single-dose antimicrobials. The exception for that would be phosphomycin. In general, a single dose is the definitive treatment for uh, patients with UTI for when you're using phosphomycin. The reason that the fluoroquinolate 
fluoroquinolones are pulled out as no longer first line, and uh, we're all guilty of using them. So I, I know uh, Toby mentioned urologists are are sometimes called out as um, guilty parties here, but we all um, like to use them because they do work. The problem is you have QTC prolongation, and sometimes in older patients there can be some pretty dramatic drug interactions that will make that even worse than their own innate prolongation, tendon rupture, and in the most recent uh, FDA black box warning, of which there are more than one, increased risk of aortic aneurysm rupture. Next slide, please. So this is addressing the duration of treatment. We want, generally want to treat people as short, with as short a course as possible when you're treating recurrent UTI patients who have an acute cystitis episode, and generally no longer than seven days. There have been a few re, uh, reviews comparing shorter and longer courses of antimicrobials for UTI. A single dose therapy, so starting with the shortest duration, it's increased is associated with an increased risk of short-term bacteriological persistence versus short course, which would be three to six days or longer course, seven to 14 days antimicrobial therapy. Next slide, please. So uh, boiling down quite a number of uh, uh, studies comparing various uh, lengths of, of therapy, a three-day course of antimicrobials from any classes associated with an increased risk of longer term, so that would be four to 10 weeks from the end of therapy, bacteriological failure versus more prolonged therapy, so five to 10 days, but no difference in risk of short-term um, bacteriological failure or short or long-term symptomatic failure. And there's notably a decreased risk of adverse effects, discontinuation due to adverse effects and gastrointestinal adverse effects as compared with longer duration of therapy. So the bottom line is that three days has been found to be, with the exception of nitrofurantoin, kind of the sweet spot for treatment of acute infections. One of the issues that comes up is in patients with recurrent UTI have an acute cystitis episode associated with urine cultures resistant to oral antimicrobials. This is something that comes to me as an infectious disease physician quite a bit, and I'm sure to urologists as well. So uh, we can use parental antimicrobials, but we want to use as short a course as is reasonable, again, no longer than seven days. A lot of these organisms are going to be producing extended spectrum beta-lactamases or ESBLs. Many are susceptible only to carbapenems on your antibiogram that you get back on that organism. So two things to look for. Now, it depends on your lab, but not all labs will show the phosphomycin susceptibility. So that can generally be ordered. Even in the most um, rural setting, you can get it done by Mayo Clinic or other send-outs. And then the other thing is it's almost always shown in the antibiogram for the organism would be nitrofurantoin susceptibility. That's worth looking into. Um, there, there's often a retained susceptibility to one or the other of those two antimicrobials. You could consult with one of my ilk if you'd like. Uh, and another um, thing to think about is if you are going to use nitrofurantoin, you want to be too, sure of two things. One is look at the renal function, make sure it's not too low. Uh, and I believe that uh, the figures are addressed either later in the slides or in the guidelines themselves. And the second thing would be be absolutely sure that you're dealing only with, with cystitis because nitrofurantoin does not really treat outside the bladder. 
Next slide, please. So uh, point number 12 is following discussion of the risks, benefits, and alternatives, clinicians may prescribe antimicrobial prophylaxis to decrease the risk of future UTIs in women of all ages who have previously been diagnosed with UTI, so recurrent UTI patients. So in systematic review, we identified 28 trials evaluating antimicrobials for prevention of recurrent UTI. Most were rated as medium to high risk of bias, predominantly for non-reporting of factors used in the assessment of bias. And actually, a lot of this is because these are older trials. There haven't been very many recent trials because this is really a, a relatively effective approach. The results consistently demonstrate a positive effect of prophylactic antibiotics acknowledging increase in risk of mild, moderate, and severe adverse events. Next slide, please. So in comparing them, uh, it's sort of hard to figure out what would be the most preferable antimicrobial based just on the various trials. So there were eight trials of one antibiotic versus another for prevention of UTI, and six evaluated comparisons involving nitroprenantuin. One trial looked at that versus nitro versus phosphomycin. One looked at trimethoprim alone. One looked at uh, nitro versus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, norfloxacin, which you can't even get anymore, and cefachlor, which I would not advise getting using if you can even find it. Again, these are older trials. There really wasn't any difference between nitrofurantoin versus other antibiotics in the risk of uh, reducing UTI to less than one. And it was associated with um, decreasing risk of recurrent UTI compared to methoprim in one um, trial. Again, I don't actually, we can talk about this in the questions, but I don't really, in this day and age, recommend using the term methoprim alone for much of anything. There is one trial that's a little bit more recent, looking at nitrofurantoin versus phosphomycin in 2007. All of the others were published in or before 1995. Chloroquinolones have been used, and they do work, but again, we don't recommend using them because you're going to be talking about daily or three times a week use, or as we'll talk about in a moment, postcoitally. And it's just too much exposure to these antimicrobials that have the black box warnings and all the other side effects we just talked about. Next slide, please. So following, again, we can use uh, prophylactic antimicrobials for cell on number 12. So what are the adverse events we're talking about here? Nitrofurantoin is actually associated with the most risk of study withdrawal due to adverse events, but otherwise um, the, the differences in, were, were not consistently uh, looked at in these trials, and all the antibiotics that we're thinking about do have potential risks. So the bottom line is that best to just discuss with patients what the risks might be in prescribing for short, medium, or long-term prophylaxis. And, those are definitions that probably should use greater research, but we can talk about them in the questions if people have questions about how long we should be describing prophylaxis and what we know about the data there. Next slide, please. So what are the side effects with nitroprantoin? It has rare but serious risk of pulmonary and hepatic toxicity. And these, these estimates, you can see that the study we cite is 1985. The rates are extremely low. There was a systematic um, uh, review that is the one that I find most reassuring in 2015, showing that um, there were no events in almost 5,000 patients from 27 controlled trials, although a chart audit retrospective um, 
albeit retrospective, in an urban medical center found that 0.7% um, of patients experienced possible serious pulmonary hepatic events, and again, 0.15% um, in, in a different, uh, in the same trial actually um, were highly suspicious for having had a reaction that one could attribute to nitroferantoin. Next slide, please. Could we go to the next slide? So essentially, there, there is a need for caution. Um, the, I think this is something you need to talk about with patients. I have a, a kind of a ad hoc algorithm I use to monitor people, which you can talk about in the questions if people are interested. It's based on no data. Um, and the other point that I made was that uh, you do need to think about um, nitroferantoin with low creatinine clearance. The main reason for that is it simply doesn't get into the urine and it can potentially have, um, you're exposing the patient to potential adverse effects when you're not really getting any um, efficacy out of it. Next slide, please. So then the other thing is we can use um, the dosing and duration of these prophylactic antibiotics. How would we use them? The guidelines have the details on dosing. It's something that we should always be looking up because you're, you're committing usually uh, three months at a time or more for these. Um, but it is notable the daily doses are a fraction of treatment doses. And that's something that I find women often ask me about. And I, I reassure them that if they have um, problems with side effects, we really don't see things like C. diff in people on prophylactic doses of antibiotics, at least anecdotally. How about postcoital prophylaxis? In women who have UTIs temporally related to sexual activity taken before or after in the same doses that have been uh, published for um, uh, continuous prophylaxis, which means three times a week or daily, you can get um, efficacy of prevention of UTI. And, and a lot of women who have temporal association or they may not see, be with the partner con continuously, so they have like a weekend exposure or something like that. It's, it's a very well-liked um, intervention in many people. You do have a decreased risk of adverse events uh, with that. And again, the doses are in the guidelines. Next slide, please. Thank you. So I'll pass this on to our next presenter. Thank you, Anne. That was very helpful. We're going to talk about non-antibiotic prophylaxis. Next slide. So one of the themes of our guidelines has been the growing concern about antibiotic resistance and collateral damage in the setting of antibiotic use. Physicians and patients alike are interested in non-antibiotic options for the prevention of recurrent UTI. Next slide. This is our diagnosis and treatment algorithm. And in the bottom right corner, you'll see the options for um, prevention, low-dose antibiotic prophylaxis we reviewed, continuous dosing versus intermittent dosing. We're going to talk next about non-antibiotic prophylaxis, both cranberry behavioral modification and others. Next slide. So for behavioral modifications, patients will come in with many um, theories about what's causing their UTIs. 
as well as a lot of self-blame. Um, there's been several studies to look at these behaviorals, uh, behaviors, and there's no evidence to support the frequency of urination, personal hygiene practices, hot tub use, pre- and post-coital voiding, douching, and tampon use to be a major contributor to recurrent UTIs. However, in 2018, there was a randomized clinical trial published on water intake. 140 premenopausal women with recurrent UTIs and at baseline had low water intake, less than 1.5 liters a day, were randomized to either no additional fluids or an additional 1.5 liters a day. Their primary outcome was the frequency of symptomatic UTI and culture. Next slide. So the water, um, additional water drinking group um, had fewer UTI recurrences, um, 1.7 um, mean episodes compared to 3.2 UTI episodes over a 12-month period, and this was statistically significant. This was a 48% reduction. Other behavioral modifications that have evidence included, includes reducing or eliminating spermicidal products, and if they have evidence of dysfunctional voiding, Pelvic floor PT has shown to decrease the incidence of recurrent UTIs over a 12-month period compared to control. One of our guidelines um, is um, centered on cranberry prophylaxis. Clinicians may offer cranberry prophylaxis for women with recurrent UTIs. The bioactive, uh, bioavailable active molecule is soluble proanthocyanidins, the PACs. Um, this inhibits the FIMH binding to the urethelium and has a dose-dependent effect on the UPEC adherence, um, exhibiting bacterial anti-adhesion activity. Um, the figure on the right side, um, panel A in the top left, is a pl um, placebo consumption. B is 16 or 18 milligrams of PAC. The C panel is 36 milligrams of PAC, and the um, D panel is 72 milligrams of PAC. So what this shows is that dose-dependent effect, and it has been shown um, over several studies that 36 milligrams of soluble PACs um, is, a, is the minimum dose needed for this um, effect. The difference between soluble PAC and insoluble, um, Soluble PACs are made from cranberry juice and cranberry juice extract, um, whereas insoluble PACs um, are involved with the, the skins, the stems, and the, the pulp um, of the cranberry. And so that, that cellulose and that pectin actually interferes with the anti-adhesion um, activity. Next slide. So for the guidelines, we looked at eight randomized trials and five were included in the meta-analysis. Cranberry was associated with a decreased risk of experiencing at least one UTI compared to placebo or cranberry. The limitation of these trials was that the side effects were often not reported. Um, there was a significant variability in dosage and um, formulation as well as study methodology. Various study methodologies um, were um, utilized, different um, outcome measures, but overall it was felt that cranberry um, has evidence for efficacy and is low risk to patients. This is a study that looked at the commercial supplements on the market. Um, this was published in 2016. 
Um, this is a seven supplements that are on the market and it and had an external um, testing of the PAC level. And as you can see, there's quite a bit of variability and there's often a low level of PAC in some of these supplements. Um, and this is partially because the FDA does not regulate um, um, food-based supplements as strictly as prescription medications. And so the labeling is often unclear. In this case, there's only one um, uh, of the tested supplements that actually met the uh, minimum requirement PAC to have that effective anti-adhesion activity. And then the others were quite low. The other options include um, lactobacillus probiotics, both vaginal and oral. In Europe, there's more um, studies and um, availability of the vaginal probiotics. Um, the data is promising, but insufficient to um, recommend at this time. Another popular option is methanamine, um, often called Hyprex. This is, hydro this is hydrolyzed to ammonia and formaldehyde, which is bacterial static. Um, it's attractive because, again, it's non-antibiotic. It's bodspectum. It has limited side effects and very little association with antibiotic resistance. Um, however, the data on methanamine is um, quite old, and there's limited studies, um, so it could not be recommended. There is currently a trial going on in Europe called the ALTER trial that is looking at um, generating some new data on methanamine. They're randomizing patients to methanamine or uh, low-dose antibiotics. Um, so that study has started recruitment, but there's no data to report yet. D-mannose is also um, a popular option with patients. Uh, it inhibits the FIMH urethelial cell adhesion and invasion. Um, again, very little data to support it um, um, at this time. There are many herbal supplements and therapies that, are, um, that have been used for many years. Again, low risk, um, but um, not much uh, evidence to support at this time. Um, there, are, there are some studies on um, vaccine trials. Um, and again, promising, uh, but not yet ready for prime time and not yet available for patients. So overall, um, for all the other options, there's insufficient evidence, small trials, imprecise estimates, and methodological shortcomings. So we were unable to recommend any of these options. Next slide. Now in the top, bottom right-hand corner of our treatment algorithm is vaginal estrogen therapy. Next slide. In peri- and postmenopausal women with recurrent UTIs, clinicians should recommend vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future UTIs if there's no contraindication to estrogen therapy. Next slide. So the prevailing theory is that it's related to the GU syndrome of menopause. Um, there's decreased epithelial um, glycogen, diminished predominance of lactobacilli, loss of the cystic environment, and therefore colonization of uropathogens. So for the um, vaginal estrogen data, there were four randomized clinical trials with a mean age of um, 65 or greater, um, 313 women. The results showed that vaginal estrogen was associated with a reduced risk of experiencing greater than one UTI versus placebo or no estrogen. Um, there's no um, clear superiority of one type of estrogen or another, uh, the formulation, the delivery method. Um, and in women with a history of breast cancer, um, it is nice and important to consult with their oncologist um, to reassure the patient that um, and, and get everyone on, on the same page. 
So the commonly used estrogen therapies um, include in broad categories, vaginal tablets or suppositories, which are inserted vaginally and exert local effects. This is often done um, two to two, three times a week um, for resolution of symptoms. There's an estrogen ring called estrine, and this was put in and um, exerts its effect over three months time. It can be removed and replaced. And there's vaginal estrogen creams, um, often um, either used with an applicator or with the finger application. Um, a small dab um, or fingertip amount is placed, again, two to three times a week um, for that local effect. Vaginal estrogen therapy is considered safe and effective and is one of our best options for um, the peri and postmenopausal women for prevention of UTIs. Um, I would like to, or it is important to clarify to patients that it's different from systemic estrogen therapy and so has a completely different side effect profile. Next slide. So in summary for non-abiotic prophylaxis, for behavioral modifications, um, a very um, do, often doable intervention is to increase water intake in women who have low water intake, avoid some hormicidal products and screen for this in your history, and pelvic floor PT if there are signs or symptoms um, of dysfunctional voiding. For cranberry, it's important to recommend an effective and potent um, uh, supplement that's uh, juice-based and has at least 36 milligrams of the soluble PACs. Um, and vaginal estrogen is also safe and effective in peri- and postmenopausal women for the prevention of UTI. The others, more data is needed. Um, certainly there may be more options in the future, but at this point there's insufficient evidence to um, recommend. All right, we're going to go on to, this is the summary of the algorithm, which we'll go over, and we've gone over all pieces of this at this point. Um, this is a nice algorithm to share with your patients, too, a visual to share with them and say, look, here's what we're going to do. Here are your options. You know, maybe we focus on this. You come to a shared decision-making together. All right, Dr. Anger. All right. Well, we're going to, before we get to, we have a couple cases to go over, but we have some really great questions. So I'm going to um, hand some of these off to my colleagues. The one I think I will take is the question as to um, PCR tests and how do we use them? And um, I'll go ahead and answer that one. It looks like they're really not ready for prime time. What you see is these PCR tests being done. Patients spend a lot of money and they can't really differentiate between colonizers, um, pathogens and basically dead uh, DNA. And so we really don't use those for prime time right now in diagnosis or management. Any other panelists have any comments? I agree. Okay. okay. <laughs> I agree. Have you seen some of these results? There, It just lists everything. I mean, it's like, what is clinically significant? What is clinically meaningful? That hasn't yet been determined. Exactly. Next question, I'll give this to Dr. Lee. I sometimes find it hard. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you the next one, Dr. Lee. I'm going to give this one to Dr. Chai. I sometimes find it hard to tease apart new onset symptoms in elderly women with recurrent UTI. For example, my patient with bladder can history of bladder cancer reports a pulling sensation at the end of her stream. She always tests positive for E. coli. She's on cranberry, hyprex, and D-mannose with a negative cystoscopy. Toby. Uh, well, those are difficult patients. I wish I had an answer. I know that there was a validated symptom scoring instrument for UTI. I think it was like a six-question questionnaire. I am sure that questionnaire, questionnaire will not help you with your particular, <laughs> unfortunately. 
Um, we all know symptoms are not the way we would like patients to tell us. We want to have a very specific answer to a very specific question, but instead we often get a litany of complaints that make us scratch our heads. So how do we determine acuity of symptoms? Um, I think one way is to try to figure out what symptoms got better with the prior treatment of UTI. That still may not buy you much more additional information, but perhaps that can cancel out and say, oh, only the symptom got better. Um, but very good question. I just don't have a way to be able to answer it. Of course, in the guideline, we had to make things very black and white and make it understandable. And I think all of us on the panel realize what we were saying is in real life, very difficult to um, be exactly the way we, we can't really tell some of these symptoms uh, to sort them out between acute and whether they're not even symptoms of UTI. And we all know that like mental status change is often blamed on the urine culture result that comes back. And there, there is a good um, editorial, there are two editorials by a geriatrician named Funikane who talked about, you know, mental status changes is not a symptom of urinary tract infections. So I think we have some support in other clinical specialties. And I, I think Dr. Stapleton would probably agree with that statement in terms of mental status changes. Um, so I don't know if the other panelists have words of wisdom for this questioner or this question that they can add to what I've said. I would just comment that we have um very clear ideas that the patient has early onset dementia, the family's overreacting. And yet often I find my hand forced to treat the patients. You know, you're treating ASB in patients that um, may not have a UTI, but you can't really, it, sometimes we're just forced by the families and I'm not, I haven't really found a good answer to that myself. Why don't we go on? I have two uh, cranberry questions for Dr. Lee. Okay. Um, how much cranberry juice and how often is it recommended as prophylaxis for UTI? And the second question is um, that the 30C, 36 PAC cranberry, such as Allura, tends to be expensive. Do we have less expensive options? These are great questions. So for the juice, um, that's one of the challenges in the um, clinical trials and data is that um, sometimes these formulations, um, some of the trials are, are, were specially formulated juices um, because they were trying to control the dosage, but that aren't commercially available. And so it's hard to recommend an amount of juice. Um, we do know that um, a potent amount of juice would be um, potentially effective. Um, I think, I don't know how feasible it is to, to to get that much juice in your system on a daily basis. Um, so the supplements um, are sort of, the juice-based supplements are condensing that active ingredients in a capsule form. Um, I don't know how accurate this is, but I asked someone once if it was like, what, how many, you know, what's that equivalent to, but 40 cranberries or whatever that amount of juice would be, I'm not sure. Um, the cost, of the juice-based supplements, the 36 milligrams of soluble PACs, is um, is high. Um, I think it's you know over a little bit over a dollar a day, um, and I've tried to research cheaper options for my patients. 
But what I found is then when I researched the cheaper options, they're not getting that potent active amount. And so you either pay more and get that potent, you know, kind of the best you're going to get, or you pay less and you get this lower level of PAC, like on that chart, it was like two to four milligrams of the PACs at best, you know, and, and these things are, you know, tested momentarily, but are they shelf stable? Do they decline over time? Do they stay stable? Um, I, you know, you get what you pay for. If you pay for a, a good supplement, I think it, it, it is going to sort of give it all, give it your all. But at the same time, I tell my patients, you know, if, if this seems to be working for you and this is what you can afford and this is what, you know, you're getting. Um, but um, one of those on the, um, on that testing, that external testing was like a Costco cranberry and it was quite low. And, you know, you just wonder whether that's going to be effective for patients or not. So it's a, it's a tough question, but I think we're getting to, to understand that the biology of it a little better. Um, that they're soluble, there's insoluble, it's the pack or the packs that's important. And um, to not have all the skins and cellulose to bind up that and, and block that anti-adhesion ability. Thanks, Dr. Lee. I have a question for Dr. Stapleton and then I think we'll go on to some cases and then we'll some, take some more questions. Many insurance companies will send you a warning letter of using nitrofrantoin in the elderly patient. Any comments? I believe that, can you hear me okay? I think I'm on. Yes. Um, so there is a newer um, review and I can get that and we could, if we have a website, we can post it after that. A newer review saying that uh, um, one can use nitrofurantoin in older people. But sometimes what I do is, if this comes up, particularly for prophylaxis, I go through a shared decision-making such as Dr. Lee was talking about with something like the algorithm and try to make a decision given the, um, if the renal function is adequate to support the use of the medication, what would be the options for quality of life um, given that the risk of side effects is pretty low if they have adequate renal function. So cite the literature and um, go through a shared decision-making kind of discussion and make sure that the person actually understands what you're talking about. Thanks, Dr. Stapleton. Why don't we go on to the cases and we'll get to some more questions at the end. Next slide, please. And these are um, given to us with courtesy of Dr. Ackerman, who is a panelist we uh, worked with. So this is a 25-year-old woman with recurrent UTI. Um, if you could just click, yeah, you could click through the, yeah. She had recurrent episodes of dysuria, hematuria, right after intercourse. She typically has cultures that are E. coli and um, her symptoms resolve with antibiotics uh, entirely. Next slide. So on her history, she's nulliparous, healthy. She is on a low dose birth control pill and um, has normal vaginal exam. Next slide. She does on her, um, let, let's see, next slide. Her history, she says, oh yeah, I remember when I was a child, I had some um, test and they put a catheter and it was traumatic for me. And she remembered having taken antibiotics, but then she grew out of the problem. So let's go to Toby. So anything you would do at this point? Um, I assume her pelvic exam is otherwise normal. Yes. 
and um, you know this history of urologic surgery and the t it sounds like a VCUG. She could have had either a you know a bulking injection to stop the VUR or a ureteral reimplant. Um, although if you can find <laughs> those records, it would be it would be nice. <laughs> And then I have sort of tried to get an answer about prior reflux children that are adults, like what's the data behind it? And I haven't found anything that gave me any clear cut idea. So I think one thing you might want to consider in someone who's had a urologic surgery is consider doing some additional diagnostic testing um, to see a cysto would tell you her ureteral orifices, are, are they in the position you expect them to be? She could have a duplication, you know, reflux is often associated with duplication. So then you're suddenly starting to think, in addition to cysto, some sort of upper tract imaging, is it a complete or incomplete duplication? Um, but I think the one question that I wasn't able to get answer on from literature is, does adult, ref what if you do a VC, what if you found that she, she did have some sort of re-implant? She does not have duplication, but you want to know, does she still have reflux? Is that a risk for recurrent UTI as an adult? I personally don't know of any data that would tell me if it is or isn't. So if she doesn't have hydronephrosis, I, I, I tend to say, why do I want to get a VCUG? Because it's not going to change my idea of management for her. But I, I'm just going to hold off on, I don't think you want me to talk about management yet until we finish <laughs> evaluation. What would you do? Let's go to the next slide, please. What would you do for the upper tracks? So, yeah, that's a, that's another um, good question. I think the you know the two choices I have are renal ultrasound or you know a CT urogram. And obviously, renal ultrasound it, it'll be easy to tell you if you have hydronephrosis or not, but you can miss duplications on renal ultrasound. So, I, I, it, Getting a CT urogram, I think, is not unreasonable with, again, the shared decision-making, the radiation risk for a CT urogram is there, whereas the ultrasound does not have a risk. And then she might ask, well, what are you going to do differently with a urogram, CT urogram result? Except the only way I would talk to her is that I get a much better um, assessment of the upper tract. It may not make me do anything different compared to a renal ultrasound. Um, and I would also consider doing a cystoscopy on her. That sounds great. Here's the algorithm. So if you have a complicating factor, like she had met the patient mentioned, then we do upper tract imaging. Without hematuria, I personally tend to start with ultrasound. How about you, Dr. Leon Stapleton? Sounds like Dr. Chai also does. Okay, great. Let's go to the next slide. So she, um, so again, she's having them about every two months. So she meets criteria for recurrent UTIs. She wants to avoid antibiotics. So she asks you, Dr. Lee, can I wipe front to back? I shower after sex. I put antiseptic on my boyfriend. I had him get a circumcision and I make him shower after sex. Is there anything else I can do? Tell her the what you would tell the patient. I mean, I would, reassure her that it is not what she's doing that's causing these UTIs, but that she has a vulnerability to UTIs from, you know, from the um, adherence of the E. coli bacteria. Um, 
I, I would, you know, sort of, it's education. It's explaining the mechanism and that, you know, that we can't get rid of all the bacteria. We live in a, a, in a microbiome from our GI tract to our GU tract. And um, so I, I would just encourage her to be not over, overdo it, you know, and, and just be, be reasonable. Um, you know, I would talk to her maybe about shift her focus to like hydration and, um, you know, she could be given her history, a dysfunctional voider. So I would screen for that. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, again, maybe consider pelvic floor PT. Um, so we've talked about water, pelvic floor PT, and then maybe a postcoital um, option. And she, if she wants to avoid antibiotics, you know, we could uh, suggest a postcoital um, cranberry extract supplement um, after sex and maybe the day after, something like that. Can I ask Next, a panelist? Oh, question? Toby? Say that again, Toby. Can I ask um, a question from the panel regarding the, uh, I don't want to make anybody on the spot, but I, I was very interested in that fluid drinking paper that you presented, Dr. Lee. Um, mm -hmm. And I looked at the decrease in the number of UTIs between the control group and the drinking lot. It went from 3.2 UTI documented per year to like 1.7. And that's like a 45% decrease. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, I'm going to ask the panelists, is drinking 1.5 or greater liter of water every single day for 365 days to reduce your UTI from 3.2 to 1.7 worth it? I would say I think it a is. lot of women think so, don't you think? I, I think so. The problem is they... Um, we don't know, like we have a lot of patients that are already really overhydrated. As you know, in the in LA, everyone carries their water bottle, and I think it's pretty much an internet, you know, an international phenomenon. And so, what we don't know is what about patients who are already hydrating, or were those patients, you know, it wasn't we don't we still have more work to do on water. But I think it because you're converting someone from a recurrent UTI patient to a normal patient by having two or less per year. So I think it is probably worth it for them especially if they're not interested in prophylaxis. How about the others, Una or, or Ian? Well, I would agree. I think um, it's worth finding out about hydration state. Again, you know, we've seen people get hyponatremic, <laughs> um, you know, have have a kind of polyuria from water. <laughs> right. So you don't want to do that, obviously. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. Okay, so here we talked about cranberry behavior modification, and the best data is on that increasing water intake to 1.5 liters or more. Next slide, please. And prior to the determinant management plan, this is key to these guidelines, is we want to involve the patient in shared decision-making. Many patients don't want antibiotics, and many patients do for prophylaxis, so it's important to take into account patient preferences. Next slide. Okay, so hey. she goes for hydration and cranberry. Next slide. She does well for a while and then comes back with acute onset dysuria hematuria. No fevers, chills, or flank pain. Next slide. Okay, so uh, here's her culture, pan-sensitive E. coli. Looks like it's a positive dip. Next slide. So I'm gonna ask Dr. Stapleton um, 
Next slide. Yeah. So she's in the past, she's been given Cipro for 10 days. So she was interested in that. What do you say to her, Dr. Stapleton? Well, we talked about why we don't want to give fluoroquinolones. Actually, if she did have upper tract disease, you could make an argument for it perhaps, but not with the situation that we have here. So we want to go for the shortest course therapy for this acute UTI with the if it's pan sensitive, probably use something like trimethoprim sulfa or nitroferantoin, depending upon her allergy situation. And nitroferantoin is FDA labeled for seven days, but it's been tested and works in a five day treatment. Next slide, please. So, do you want to run through these? Um, these are considered first line. Do you have any comments on this, Dr. Stapleton? Um, I would say uh, the most, um, I guess, the what is it about the fifth line down there about resistance. I think most people know that we have these in the first um, line uh, columns because they are do have low um, collateral damage and high cure rates. The uh, one thing to know about phosphomycin is it often covers quite a few other organisms, so it's worth thinking about. Many hospitals, if you dig into it, are sort of hiding it in our formulary because they don't want everyone to use it willy-nilly. So um, there are settings where it's not that easy to get. Um, there's the dosing that differs between the three uh, regimens. The main thing I would say is that trimethylum sulfamethoxazole resistance is the most important thing in that line to think about. It's uh, phosphomycin resistance is extremely low so far in, in the United States. And nitroferantoin has been low for about 50 years in North America as a whole. So that's not much of an issue most of the time. Do any of you have trouble getting phosphomycin covered? I've had a little bit of trouble with that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's expensive. I usually have them get a prior authorization. Mm -hmm. For yeah, the ESBL indication. Well, that's a pretty easy um, calculation for the on the part of the hospital if you show them how much it is to give her to pen them once a day. Um, yeah. You did after sure. that. They're really thrilled about that. Um, but right. sometimes what I do is if I think someone's going to need it, I'll actually have them work on it in advance and have it set aside for a future infection. Because That's it can smart. take several weeks to get it. And then by that time, you know, you've already had to give them a carbapenem. Right. Next, uh, next slide, please. And okay, now she's thinking it's time for more aggressive treatment. Um, so we talk, meaning prophylaxis. Next slide, please. So, um, Doctor, sorry, Doctor Lee, tell me what prophylaxis. So, what for this patient? We know she's sexually active. She's 25 years old. Let's say she's sexually active about two to three times a week because she's young and she doesn't have kids in her bed. So um, you have, uh, what would you recommend for, of these, these are what we, the, the guidelines show, but what's your personal go-to for postcoital prophylaxis? Right, so these dosages and antibiotics are all um, directly lifted from the clinical trials that were, uh, the guidelines were based out of. It's single strength Bactrim, one tablet, double strength Bactrim, one tablet, uh, nitroferantone either at a 50 milligram dose or 100 milligram dose or uh, a Keflex or Cephalexin. Um, I personally um, use nitroferantone often um, because I just feel like the the, um, the concentration in the urine is good, it's well tolerated, um, it's you know low dose, 
and um, generally people tol you know, don't have side effects to it. So I prefer the 100 milligram dose, um, but I think some people, you know, definitely do okay with the 50 milligram dose. I just, I found that the efficacy, um, and so for her, this patient, it would be two to three times a week, 100 milligrams of nitrofurantoin. I'm sorry to I'm, say it looks like we've all I'm sorry to myself. Okay. So um oh, this is so the question was prophyla um prophylactic nitrofurantoin in older people. We we often get letters from um from uh, drug companies or insurance companies saying that this is dangerous for the older patient. What um what do you do when you get that kind of warning letter? Um Dr. Tai? Um I talk to patients about it and we try to make a Sure decision. I, I think it is a difficult problem in the sense of, you know, the warnings are, they, they can be alarming at times, but I think it's also, you know, have they been, have they used it in the past? You can ask them. If they haven't, then, you know, you're a little bit concerned, but I, I sort of, I still use it even though, you know, there, there's the warnings. It's just balancing your risk benefits. But um, yeah. And Dr. Stapleton, I remember in our panel, you you felt that the risk of like lung fibrosis in older adults is very rare. That you it doesn't prevent you from using it. Is that true? That's that's correct. It's it's thought to be idiosyncratic, uh, and uh, a lot of this is anecdotal information. But I uh, it first came up for me in my UTI clinic some years ago. I spoke with Dr. Lindsay Nicole who had a UTI clinic for 40 years or something like that in Canada, and she'd never seen it. And she had some women she never got off of nitrofurantoin daily prophylaxis for 25 plus years. So I think it is so unusual uh, that, you know, and then you balance that against uh, hospitalizations as they get older, developing ESBLs, being overtreated, having to bring in cultures, things like that, when they have mobility issues, having to get IV antibiotics, C. diff, all the things that people see um, with older patients that I think this is a far more benign option in many, if not most cases. And Dr. It's, Stapleton, what about the 50 milligrams versus the 100 milligrams? What's your thoughts on that? I tend to use 50 milligrams if they have normal renal function um, as in the older people, if it's daily. If it's postcoital, I would agree with you, probably you need 100. And if they're doing it three times a week, I would consider doing 100 for each of those doses. There's never been any difference shown, but again, we know that if renal function is, you know, not prohibitively low, but a bit lower, you're, you're probably going to, it's not a linear curve, but there's a le less nitrofurantoin getting into the bladder. So I want to, you know, it appears to be a sort of a kill of bacteriuria before it takes hold is how it works in anyone. Um, so, and particularly the postcoital one that we were talking about, that's probably how that works. So, I do want a little bit higher dose. Okay. Next slide. And that's also my go-to, by the way. So, <laughs> sorry. No, no. 
Okay, and next slide. So this is back to the low-dose preventive antibiotics, which could be um, continuous dosing, like daily, or if it is notably um, related to sexual activity, then we do intermittent dosing. I just want to add that in young uh, young women who are, you know, have very high rates of sexual, act high frequency sexual activity, they often say, or someone who has a stable relationship, they often don't notice that these are related to sexual activity. So if they have a partner and they're having regular intercourse, I'll often start with um, pericoidal antibiotics and see how that works uh, first before going to daily. Next slide. Okay, let's go on to case two, and then we'll try to save, we have about five minutes for case two so that we can have a few minutes for a couple more questions. So this is, and this was a question, um, an 84-year-old woman independently living. Uh, she has recurrent UTIs. She also has some pain with sexual activity, dryness, and some irritation. Um, but when she gets infection, she definitely gets notably worse, like dysuria with frequency and urgency but she does have some dryness or dysuria between infections that's not as severe and no complicated history such as pilo. Next slide, please. And okay, perfect. So uh, her history is hypertension, osteoarthritis, lumpectomy for breast cancer, medications are metoprolol and, and celecoxib. She has some notable vaginal atrophy with some um, atrophic vaginitis. Next slide. So, Dr. Lee, what would you? How would you start with this patient, um, knowing her history and exam? Yes. Well, she has dyspareunia, postmenopausal vaginal atrophy, or GU syndrome, or menopause, as well as recurrent. Does she have recurrent UTIs? I'm going back to the history. She, yes. she does. Yes, she does. Okay. Yeah. About um, four. Yeah. Okay. So she's a great candidate for um, uh, local vaginal estrogen. Um, you know, the formulations. You know, you could basically base it on her insurance coverage and find the option that's probably the best covered um, as opposed or whichever one she um, prefers. Given her exam, the cream might be a good option just because she seemed to have some vulvar um, involvement. Um, but just to give her the instructions explicitly to warn her about the insert so that she's not alarmed by the um, the risks that are listed on there that are more associated with systemic estrogen. Um, um, so give her instructions um, probably for two or three times a week and give her the expectation that this is not, you know, kind of an instant medication, but, you know, something that's going to take a little bit of time to improve. How long do you, and I'd like to hear from all of you, how long will you have them on estrogen before, like I tell my patients, wait, don't expect it to reduce your rate of infections for a full three months, but that's just something I've heard in practice. I was curious what you all do. Same. I agree. Same here, and that's based on the original study done long ago with a bit higher doses of cream, but I don't think that makes a difference. It just takes some time to change the microbiome, probably in the vagina, and also to have the trophic effect on the vaginal lining, because it sounds like she has some dysuria probably related to GSM as well. Yes. Uh, next slide. Okay, and so she has intermittent burning after urination, but it does resolve with some barrier creams. Next slide. And if you could click, let's see, we'll show the algorithm. So vaginal estrogen in particular for peri and postmenopausal women, 
um, who don't have contraindications. The one comment I would add is there really are very few contraindications. Um, most oncologists are fine with vaginally dosed estrogen. Um, systemic is another story, but I haven't really seen oncologists who won't give um, vaginal estrogen, even for breast cancer survivors. Next slide, please. Okay, so she does note improvement in her irritation with estrogen. Next slide. Okay, so she calls the office. This is for Dr. Chai. She calls the office and she states her primary doctor did her physical and found 50,000 colony forming units of Klebsiella pneumonia. Next slide. Okay, and click please. And she has no real changes in her symptoms. Some urgency and frequency and mild vulvar irritation, but not really classic dysuria, which she has had before. So Dr. Chai, how, what would you do now? I would do, I would call the primary care doctor and say, don't send any cultures <laughs> when patient is not complaining of anything. So it's actually good to communicate with the primary care providers. <laughs> Maybe they're sure. sending it for another reason. I don't know. And that's a good idea. And patients often, I think when you tell patients who have been overtreated with ASB and say, I'm afraid you're getting overtreated with antibiotics, they're very responsive to that and they often like, are usually okay with not treating it. Next slide, please. Okay, so now she comes to the ER with acute onset dysuria, chills, and burning, and now she has an ESBL. No fever, flank pain, and no leukocytosis. Next slide, please. She's treated with zosin initially until cultures come back, and then antibiotics are tailored to gentamicin. Next slide. So she's feeling better and she's asymptomatic after her treatment. Next slide. Okay, so now we talked about estrogen. What would we do now for prophylaxis, Dr. Stapleton? Uh, so, I'm sorry, someone just walked to my office. Um, so she is on uh, the vaginal estrogen, correct? Right, and she developed an ESBL, which was managed in the hospital because she was actually Euroseptic. I don't necessarily prophylax them, but if I were going to, I would probably uh, think about doing a phosphomycin, and that's been tested. It's not FDA approved, but it's been given in um, once a week or once every 10-day dosing. And again, I choose based on GFR. A lot of older people have a reduced GFR, so I give those people once a week if it's acceptable, or you could use nitroferantoin. That, that would probably be known from the antimicrobial um, susceptibility testing. I may or may not do anything because she's probably just gotten some fairly broad spectrum antimicrobials and I might just have her watch symptoms uh, and stay on her vaginal estrogen. Okay, thanks. Next slide, please. Okay, so here's a continuous prophylactic um, options. And so here's the phosphomycin every three days. And so when you said that, Dr. Stapleton, you consider nitrofurantoin, um, you would do that assuming that her ESBL was sensitive to it, or would you not worry about that because you know that she was um, already treated for the ESBL? 
I, I always go by the last isolated organism when I choose a prophylactic regimen. So if it was resistant, which is uncommon, but it does occur, I would not use nitroferantoin. Now there is one, I think one publication in the infectious diseases literature, at least maybe more, suggesting that phosphomycin, if you can't get, uh, you cannot get susceptibilities right away, which at this point you may not be able to, they may have thrown out the bug. Um, it's almost always uh, in this country efficacious and will be susceptible for most DSBLs. So that's probably safe. Now, uh, there is, the other problem is that this is a Klebsiella, correct? Was it a Klebsiella? Yes. No, this one, this is ESPL. It was E. coli. E. coli, though. E. coli, okay. The, the issue there is that um, there are no CLSI guidelines for um, susceptibility testing in the United States for anything but E. coli and Enterococcus um, faecalis, not faecium. So uh, if you have um, one of the other organisms, you have to make, you have to guess unless your lab will do that susceptibility, susceptibility for you. And I, for example, have tried to get Quest Labs to do it and they flat out refused because there's no guidelines, there are European guidelines. So if you're going to use empiric phosphomycin, assuming an ESBL is susceptible, well, first of all, you can ask one of us if you'd like, but mm -hmm. if you don't have access or you don't wanna wait for us to answer you, um, E. coli and uh, enterococcus, you can go back and check on it. You can have it done while you're trying it as a treatment or prophylaxis, but the other organisms, you may not be able to prove that it's okay. Um, to use phosphomycin. Thank you. Well, she question. does great. She goes on uh, phosphomycin prophylaxis and she does great. I don't, I think we're out of time, um, unfortunately. I, um, but I wanted to thank everybody. And if you do have some questions, we can actually um, email you directly. There's some great questions about methenamine and um, and gentamicin um, irrigations. Um, briefly, I know um, methenamine. We the question was whether methenamine could be used with vitamin C. If you usually use it with vitamin C or not, um, we need more data on methenamine. That's for sure. We were really disappointed because as in urologists, you know, it's been used for literally a um, hundred years, and we were sad that there was not enough evidence. So we're working on getting that evidence so we can know about it and whether or not it goes with vitamin C, we need to do studies. There's no real studies that show that. Um, last question I'll, I'll say for you, Dr. Stapleton, um, what about um, um, gentamicin irrigations? Do you ever do that? Well, as a non-urologist, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have seen someone believe they responded to it. I think that evidence is very scant on that, even uh, using, uh, um, bladder washes for fungus where it was a little bit more, not gentamicin, um, but you know, you, that's the only bladder washing situation I'm aware of where there's a little bit of data suggesting it works, but amphotericin B, but I'm not aware of studies that have systematically looked at whether or not a gentamicin um, wash would actually work, though I know there are anecdotal reports of it working and keeping people free of UTI for periods of time. I've been given the green light for a couple more minutes. So how about Una or Toby? Do you ever use um, gent installations for bad recurrence where they don't want to take systemic antibiotics? I have an easy way out of this question and then a more practical thought. The easy way out is this guideline was not intended to talk about those patients. That's <laughs> uncomplicated. 
because we're talking about people who probably are on, say, self-cath, and they're already having some aspect of abnormality of their lower urinary tract. But getting back to just use of genomycin, I do know that Ann Cameron at Michigan is doing it in a neurogenic bladder trial of irrigation with genomycin in, those are complicated, but there is a practical thing. We have pharmacists, depending on your location, that refuse to uh, reconstitute genomycin because they don't have the right, uh, listen, it's going in the bladder, but they don't really care. If you have to mix something, there's a very specific uh, regulatory environment. And uh, so I've been in different academic centers now, and I, I think I've noticed what we used to do in the old days where we could literally carry genomycin in our office and mix it up and then give it to a patient. So now you're never going to find anybody who's going to be able to mix it up for you in a, in a way that you'll be able to, to get it. So it really depends on also the practice environment. See, right now in a hospital-based practice, we have to go through, even in the clinic, we have to go through the hospital pharmacy. And I'm telling you, there are many hospital pharmacies that will not mix this up for you. They don't know the stability of genomycin at room temperature. They don't know the dose. They're, they're like, you're just making this stuff up, basically. So, um, Probably are. We are. Um, this is great. I think that's um, all that we have time for. And I think I just felt a little earthquake. So it's a perfect time. <laughs> For us I thought I did too. <laughs> wow. This area. Uh.